T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. Boy, you know, the idea that you could pour so much into other people and people that you don't even know. Like when I first called him, I was like some twit in grad school, you know, like the fact that he would be willing to give time to anybody. It's such an inspiration. And it's something that I really hold on to myself now as a professional is if someone of that stature can be like that, I can definitely be like that. Welcome to WBBM In-Depth. My name's Jill DeGroote. American composer of modern classical and avant-garde music, George Crumb, has died at the age of 92. Today, we're talking to Jenny O. Brown, a Chicago-based professional flutist, chamber musician, and entrepreneur, about Crumb's life, music, and legacy. In your own words, who is George Crumb for those listening who may have never heard of George Crumb? Oh my goodness, what a great question. I would say that George Crumb is is a true American icon and that there are so many artists in this world that are trying to be a unique voice and that are trying to push the envelope. And he just did that in a very organic way. And I think that a large reason for that is that all of his ideas came from a source of love for him. And, um, you know, for example, the piece that I'm most familiar with is Voice of the Whale. And one of the things that he was really passionate about was the natural world and the earth. And, you know, he was, it was more than just trying to like capture different sounds. He was trying to capture like the echoes of the Appalachian Mountains. You know, it was effects like that. And it was through this love of the natural world that then he sort of had this respect for what it offered us and the ways that he would capture the sounds of the whales that he had heard in recordings that were so intelligent and so responsive. Like that all came out of this incredibly deep respect for the earth. And when I had visited with him in 2019, I remember he expressed to me his concern about the way that we're taking care of the earth. And, you know, perhaps the better way to express it is the way that we're not taking care of the earth. And that was something that was deeply concerning to him and that, you know, brought a lot of sort of pain in his eyes because he so much loved the earth and loved um, the natural world. So, yeah, I think in in one sense, he was able to 
um, create music that just had this incredible ability to engage the imagination. And it was like he was painting these scenes and these, um, you know, the, these experiences in sound that people could actually connect to and hear. And there were so many times where you would listen to Crumb's music and you would really feel like you had been transported into a different world, you know, into a world where there were whales swimming all around you or, you know, again, the, the echoes of the mountains or like mathematical formulas spinning around your head. I mean, that was George Crumb's music. And he also had this ability to kind of create these like patchwork quilts of different inspirations that put together in his music made perfect sense, but were coming from all of these different disparate sources, like, you know, different quotes from different repertoire that he really loved, again, coming from this place of love, and at the same time fusing with this incredible intellectual ability and this incredible craftsmanship and dabbled with echoes of the natural world and other influences. And so that was very much what his music was like. And it was so innovative and so different and so unique. And it was simultaneously so specifically of an era of time and yet completely universal and timeless. I, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, you shared a little bit about this before the interview, but could you share again uh, how you came to kind of discover Crumb's music for the first time? Absolutely. So um, I went to Northwestern for my undergraduate and a very dear friend of mine at the time was Jonathan Keeble, who is now the professor of flute at the University of Illinois. And when it came time for me to audition for graduate school. I wanted to audition at Eastman and Jonathan being the dear generous soul that he was, was sort of my escort during that time when I was auditioning. And he, um, I remember he was like, oh, I have this rehearsal. You've got to come and listen. So of course I went and the rehearsal was of George Crumb's Voice of the Whale. And my mind was blown. And I had studied new music in undergrad and um, somehow I didn't know about this piece at the time. And when I heard them rehearsing it, I, I just was completely awestruck, not only by the piece, but also their playing. I mean, it was just fantastic. So when I had the good fortune then to go to Eastman, it was sort of on my bucket list to play this piece. But that was my very first introduction to Crumb's music. And again, it was just this, this sort of explosion of ideas as I was listening to it, because I thought it's like every boundary that you study in sort of your average undergraduate survey class was broken. And it was just so mind blowing. So when I got to Eastman and I'd had a chance to perform it, I was just completely hooked. And I also did the Idyll for the Misbegotten which is a gorgeous piece that Crumb wrote for flute and percussion. And it's even like visually really arresting because you're like this little teeny flute <laughs> in, in the midst of a sea of percussion instruments. And like everything with Crumb's music had so much drama and so many theatrics and his music lent itself so well 
to the visual. So, you know, for Voice of the Whale, he instructs you how to light the stage. And of course, you're supposed to be wearing masks. So there's the, the theatricality of that. And even in his music that doesn't have those kind of instructions, like you can easily imagine all sorts of visuals that could accompany those performances as well. Later in my studies, I um, had to do a lecture recital to get my doctorate degree. And of course, the piece that I chose was Voice of the Whale. So that um, then became a very serious source of study because I had to tear it apart from a historical perspective, a theoretical perspective, and then actually be able to lecture about it and perform. And that was the point that I mustered up the courage to actually contact George Crumb. And I remember I called him out of the blue and his wife answered the phone and I was like, um, hello, may I speak to Mr. Crumb, please? Like I was so terrified. <laughs> and she was so sweet and so friendly. And I, I distinctly remember she was like, George. And then he, you know, I hear these like boom, 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 footsteps. And then he comes and picks up the phone. And I had just the most lovely conversation with him. It like practically brings tears to my eyes. And I remember I asked him, you know, I, I'd methodically written out all these questions about like, what about this? And what about this? And what do I do with this? And blah, blah, blah. And I remember he, he was like, you know, Jenny, when I write these pieces, I write them to release them. And so this piece is really for you. And however you want to play it and however you interpret my writing, you have my blessings. And that was, you know, for a young musician, that was really powerful to have someone of that stature say that they trusted me and other musicians with their music. Because I was thinking, I need to do everything just the way George Crumb wants it to be done. <laughs> and so it was just really, it was really mind blowing to me to have that perspective. Since then, um, my friend Kurt, who I mentioned earlier, and another dear friend of mine, Jennifer Blythe, who's on faculty at Dickinson College, we sort of thought of this as being like our piece. And from that point, Jennifer was also um, a graduate student at Eastman with Kurt and me. From that point, we performed that piece so many times. I mean, we literally lost count after 25 because we're like, okay, once we hit 25, we, we can stop counting. <laughs> but it was a piece that not only was repeatedly in demand you know we would offer all sorts of different repertoire and that was the piece that people always wanted to hear but it was also a piece that really spoke to audiences when we played it and i'll tell you i hated wearing those masks i hated it with a passion i was like get this thing off of me it would like shift while you're playing and like it would tickle your nose and then you'd want to sneeze and like you know etc 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 but we never once performed it without the masks because that was so integral to how he conceived of the piece. Like that removal of the human element was actually really important for the interpretation of the piece. It was unbelievable to us. In every, every single performance we grew, every single one, we never really learned how to play the piece because every time we would sit down with it again, we would discover something else. It, it was like, you know, that whole idea of the onion just peeling back the layers. That's what that piece became to us. And so in like, I don't know if it was like 2016 or something like that, we thought, 
we've really got to put this down. So we um, worked with Dan Nichols of Aphorism Studios, who I think is just a genius, times 10, and one of my favorite people, and Chicagoan of the year, according to the Chicago Tribune. Um, so we worked with him and we recorded Voice of the Whale and he was really pleased with it and we were really pleased with it. And um, the recording was released by Innova Recordings in 2019, just in time for the pandemic. <laughs> so we wanted it released in 2019 because that was celebrating George Crumb's 90th birthday. And we had told Mr. Crumb that we were going to do that and he was absolutely tickled. He was so thrilled. And we had sent him the recording along the way and he was very generous and very kind in response to it. And we were able to go and visit with him for an afternoon and he invited his daughter who lived up the street to come and join us and we spent the afternoon with George and his wife, Elizabeth, and Anne, who, by the way, was an incredibly successful Broadway star. She also had dedicated her life to rescuing dogs. So she had a dog rescue that she was guesstimating that she had rescued close to a thousand dogs. A thousand dogs. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like 900 and change. And, um, she was doing things like driving herself down to like flooded areas and picking up dogs and driving to this place and picking up dogs and eventually finding them all homes. And many of the dogs stayed with George and Elizabeth. And I guess at one point they were cracking up because they had nine dogs in their house, nine dogs. And they loved the big dogs. So they were like these giant like horses of dogs, like all running around. And you could tell they were so loved and so well cared for. And when we were there, there were just a couple dogs. And um, it was so funny because I love dogs. I'm like a huge dog fan. And at one point the dog came and like literally sat on me. So I was like, here's my head, here's the dog's head. <laughs> And I, I just couldn't resist, you know, I took, I, I actually um, took probably more pictures of their dogs than I did of George Crumb, which, you know, is a mistake, but it was really, really incredible. George, um, well, we always call him Mr. Crumb, we didn't actually call him George, because we were, we were so just deeply in awe of his presence, so Mr. Crumb, um, took us to um, his back room where he did all of his composing. And I have to tell you, like we walked in and it was like, I, I cannot even fully express the feeling of being in that space. Because for one thing, there's like, you know, like awards all over the place. And it was like this little tiny back room that maybe was only slightly bigger than my basement room here. It had a grand piano and a desk and oodles of shelves and like mild chaos. <laughs> and we walk in and there's like a score open of a piano piece that he had just composed. And I'm looking at this and I asked him, I was like, is this all like hand written? And he was like, oh yeah, all of my scores are all handwritten. And I knew that, but looking at it, it looked as precise as anything that you could find from a printer. And it just was so phenomenal to look at it. I mean, it, it truly felt like 
I had just seen a Picasso on a table with Picasso standing there. That's really, truly what it felt like. And like every spacing was perfect. Like the note heads were perfectly on the line. Everything was immaculately, immaculately um, precise. The, you know, the distance of the notes from one another, everything, it was like just unbelievable. So I know this is a podcast, so you're not going to have the visual element, but for your listeners, if you want to Google George Crumb's manuscripts, you'll find scores that are completely circular. You'll find scores that are, they, they look like peace symbols with the music written in them. And you'll find scores that, you know, you'll find many scores where the lines don't always continue, <laughs> where you'll have a line that goes three inches in and then it jumps to another line and it jumps to another line. And that might seem like it would be really confusing to the performer, except when you understand the concept behind why he does things that way, it's it honestly becomes like the only way that that could have been written. Then when you look at what other composers have done since that time, he continues to influence the way that we think about notation. And it's not only in the way that it looks on a larger level, but it's also on a smaller level as well, where sometimes he had meters and sometimes he didn't have meters. And, you know, sometimes things were proportional where you're supposed to play them according to how they're placed in the bar. And sometimes they were just normal standard metric notation. And he was just such an innovator in that way of really, and he wasn't trying to break the mold. I'm convinced of that. I think he just had an idea of what he was trying to express. And in his normal courteous way, he was trying to figure out the best way to communicate that to the performer. And so I see that very much as an extension of his personality of like, how can I be the most helpful? And that's what his scores became. I mean, they were so clear. It, it just was so clearly communicated what his intentions were. We go into this space and there are these um, albums, like these, these huge, I'm guessing leather bound albums. And he opens one up. He's like, come look at this. Every article that he knew about of his music had been saved in these albums. So reviews, you know, whatever, you know, birthday, you know, whatever, anything that had been in the press that he knew about was in these albums. And then he shows up, he shows us like the original score of like some of his really great works. Like he pulls out this copy of Macrocosmos and he was like, you know, like this quote right here, I was actually going to use this Rachmaninoff quote, but it wasn't in copyright. And so, you know, I'm kind of waiting for it to like come out of copyright so I can toss that in there. And like, we're like totally cracking up and we're looking at this like, oh my gosh, right? It was just such a remarkable time. So we sat together in his basement and he listened to our recording. We had sent it to him previously, but you know, being who he was, he wanted to listen to it with us there. And so we sat there with him and like I had been on the phone with him many, many times before and I'd sent him letters because he's like not the biggest fan of email and stuff like that. So I was very happy to like put stuff in snail mail for him and like write notes to him like that to me was really fun. And so we sat there and he puts our album on and like all of us are like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> like our hearts are like, oh my gosh. 
And, you know, like every now and then he would just like offer these encouragements like, oh, that was so great. Wow, that was so beautiful. You know, I love the way you did that. Like throughout the whole thing. And then we get done and, um, you know, he, he just seemed like really, truly grateful, which was not the response that we were expecting. You know, it just was like so gracious of him. And before we had had that visit with him, I had been, like I mentioned, I had several phone calls with him and I'd been on the phone with him. And um, I wanted to talk to him about the big solo at the beginning of Voice of the Whale. And um, I sent him my recording of it. And this is not at all to be boastful. This is, this is just to explain like what George Crumb was like. And he said, he described it as perfect. And that's, that's a comment that I will take with me to my grave. And not because I'm so proud that I did it perfectly, but what he said was, you know, when I wrote that solo, nobody had ever written something like that before. And I wasn't totally sure how to notate it. And so I was concerned that I was going to put it out there and I was going to like hear something like completely wacky and like not what I had conceived. And he said, it, when you play it, it occurred to me that my notation is correct and that my notation is communicating what I wanted to communicate. And so that was so important to me because in all of those dozens of times of playing it, I had really thought about like what, what is intrinsic to the way that he's crafted this score. Like what is he communicating, not even just in the written words, but in the way that the notes are put together and the way that he has the extended techniques described. And so that was what he was describing as perfect, is that he felt like his notation had communicated what he wanted to communicate. And so that was, that was so meaningful to me as an artist and as a performer that I had maybe gotten close to understanding what his notation was supposed to say, which of course was my ultimate goal. After um, that visit, he said, okay, now once this album comes out, like every single review that you get, I want you to send it to me. Even the bad ones, send me the bad ones. <laughs> so I, um, you know, every review that we got, unfortunately we didn't get any bad ones, but I would have sent them anyway. But um, every review that we got, I printed out and I, I sent them on to him. So who knows, maybe they're in those giant albums. We had such a fun afternoon with him that day that um, we actually purchased new scores because ours were just like, like totally beat up. So we purchased new scores and we brought them to him and asked them to sign, sign the scores, which of course he did. But it was such a fun evening that even Elizabeth signed my score. So I have this like, you know, I'm sure I'm probably the only one that has both George and Elizabeth's signature on it. <laughs> But yeah, you know, it, it was such a joy to me to have that small connection with him over the years. And what I'd expressed to you earlier is, you know, I promise you, I am not someone special to George Crumb. I think this is really just the way that he was with everyone, with anyone that would reach out to him, anyone that had a deep respect for his music, Certainly, I know that his students were incredibly beloved, and um, he was so proud of his students. And his own son, David, is also a composer. So, 
I think the idea of, of seeing this legacy of great American music continuing on was something that was really deeply important to him. So yeah, just my, my small experience with him, but it, it sure was a lot of fun. And um, it, it, was, it is definitely something that I will never forget. And now, as you know, Jillian, um, I'm just at the tail end of my stint as the executive and artistic director of Ear Taxi Festival. And I see that very much as an outgrowth of that very first time that I heard Crumb's music. Because that was really the first time that I felt like this new music is phenomenal. You know, I had studied new music. I played, you know, the Barry Sequenza was a big part of my senior year at Northwestern. And, you know, I loved a lot of new music, but Crumb's music together with a composer named Chinari Ung, um, who also worked at University of Pennsylvania with George Crumb for a period of time. The two of them really took my life in a different direction. And it really is just out of the sheer beauty of their music that sparked this life commitment in me to really fantastic new music. And it's incredible to think that art can do that, but that's, that's the power of really great art. Boy, you know, the idea that you could pour so much into other people and people that you don't even know, like when I first called him, I was like some twit in grad school, you know, like the fact that he would be willing to give time to anybody it's such an inspiration and it's something that I really hold on to myself now as a professional is if someone of that stature can be like that, I can definitely be like that, right? And that that's where that type of inspiration is honestly so important for our field. If someone wants to find your new album and listen to uh, the work that you've mentioned today, uh, how could they do that? It's available on Spotify. On it's it's actually everywhere, and um, it's called Vox, and it's with the Here Ensemble H E A R E Ensemble, and it's released by Innova Recordings. That was Chicago flutist Jenny O. Brown. Thanks for tuning in to WBBM in Depth, and don't forget to subscribe on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A News Radio WBBM podcast powered by Odyssey. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. 
Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.